0: This is the Coogee Base Special, a crisis management podcast brought to you by Trebuchet Pivot. My name is Garth Callender and each episode I'm going to take you on a journey to explore crises from Australia and around the globe. We're going to unpack them a little to understand what triggered them, what the impact has been, not just for the organisation, but often the industry sector and beyond. And most importantly, we're going to look at what lessons we can learn from them. Podcast. I'm delighted to have my very good friend uh, Martin Harper on uh, as the uh, the guest uh, co-presenter with me tonight. Um, and I say tonight because it's Friday night. And um, Marty, welcome. Thanks, Garth. Thanks for having Thank me for, on. Thanks for giving up your Friday night. I I got a glass of scotch which I'm going to drink while we do this. Just hang in a second. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> this bad podcast already.
0: So Marty, you're pretty interesting guy and you've got an amazing professional background but um there's one thing i've always found uh, amazing about you and that's um that's the fact you're a school captain
1: how did that happen
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how did you know that uh, long memories but what so we
1: worked together oh in, um,
0: we went through duntroon together in uh, uh very 2000. early 2000 yep yep
1: yeah, and then and of course, you know, I I transferred out of the out of the regular army to go pursue other paths. While you sort of went on to, um, to you know, continue your illustrious career. Your career has been quite astounding, and I do remember you coming around to dinner,
0: at our place in what two thousand and five, two thousand and six, and saying, saying, yeah, I've uh, got a bit of news. Going to uh, cut army away for a bit. Uh, I've been accepted to NIDA. So you are. You hold, um, as far as we know, the quite unique and illustrious achievement of being a graduate of both Military College Duntroon and uh, uh, National Institute of Dramatic Arts. So that's pretty
1: cool to have under your belt. (laughs) I'm uh, I'm pursuing the next institution I need to go into so my plan is just to go into school after school after school <laughs> <laughs> just as long as they're they're pretty high level schools no it's an interesting one i mean early in early on in the career i think i was you know i've been sort of hunting for for various paths and I learned a lot of stuff from Working with really great people, you know, and looking up to great people such as yourself. Uh, but then pursuing—oh my god! But then pursuing uh, <laughs> this podcast is sycophantic, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, no, but then, <laughs> but then, uh, you know, looking for for other things, and you know, um, I always had an interest in in performing and acting, and I've been lucky enough to do that for the last ten years, and and work in uh, you know coaching and and communications training and. I, I still do a bit of work with the Army sort of in that as well. So it's a nice sort of crossover of those of those worlds. And I think the, the work that you're doing now in the, the crisis management space, uh, I think in many ways is about communication and, and not, not just knowing what to say, but listening to the situation and reading the room and, and knowing when to respond in a timely fashion. Uh, and so that's been so, I mean, congratulations on the podcast sort of so far, because they've been, they've been really interesting. Yeah, thanks. Well, I think your, your comment about reading the room is really interesting. And it's one of the things that falls
0: out some of the stuff today is is not listening to the room when you have subject matter experts around you. And we're a bit blind to, to what happens behind closed doors in some of the organisations we're going to talk about. But I wonder sometimes if people are shutting their mouths or or if there isn't an adult in the room when some of these things occur. So, um, so look, let, let's get into it though. So you got excited about this
1: when we started talking about fashion it's <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah i mean it's uh I've, I've, people have often looked looked up to me for my fashion sense um you know right now I, i'm right I now have, i'm wearing yeah. socks and sandals
0: <laughs> look i don't want to sound like a sycophant but you know good choice it's uh sensible yeah, that's got it's comfortable <laughs> I get in trouble from my wife, Crystal, because I go into a store and find something that fits and I buy three or four of exactly the same thing.
1: Oh, the same.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, So perhaps we're not the best people to be talking about fashion itself. Yeah. But, but there's some interesting stuff which has been happening in the industry recently. And it's such an amazing in- industry because – Uh, there's a lot of glitz, there's a lot of glamour, there's a lot of egos, there's a lot of organisations which have been built off individuals. There are some people that perhaps are not uh, in tune with what's going on in the world as they potentially could be. Maybe they are the artistic types that maybe don't read
1: people, events. You've mentioned that, you know, it comes from one person who potentially is a bit of an auteur, you know, they've had a great idea, a creative idea, they're very protective of it and the ego and and then there's a, a certain amount of power that comes with it um it's pretty hard to shake egos to move in different strategic directions like you would in a um another organizational structure
0: yeah that's right and um they're there probably because of their talent rather than their mm-hmm. ability well sorry their their talent and their personality may be beyond their ability to run a business that that's a pretty broad statement but
1: I wouldn't say it's far from
0: the uh I wouldn't say it's far from the truth. This is a bit different to the previous podcasts I've done because um they were quite dramatic events that occurred. They were points in time that you could point to and say that's that's what happened, you know. That's was this is when the extortion yeah. attempt started. Um this is when the accident happened at Dreamworld. Um and and I wanted to do this this piece on fashion because these are all slow burns. You know, when is when is it business as usual, and when is it a crisis? I, I think the easy answer to that is go and have a look at your risk register. Mm. Are you seeing a realization of one of your risks? Has your treatment strategy fallen over? Is is that what you're seeing in in red or amber? Is that now starting to play out? Yeah. Or for Victoria's Secret, it may be, are we losing market share because we're out of line with current social conventions, with current um, social movements? Uh, Are we looking like we're out of touch?
1: And what are your senses that are actually giving you those metrics Mm -hmm. as well? Yep. Yep. Are
0: Are they purely relying on sales figures, in which case they're just watching them drop? The first one we're going to talk about today is, is Victoria's Secret, which is exactly what's happened. So they, they steady steady sales um, from 2010 on, onwards until 2017 when they, they first saw their drop, um, and then that's been slipping ever since. Uh, mm. To be fair, they've still got 25% of the market, but that's down from 31%. This, this was founded by, by an individual, a chap named Les Wexner. Um, Mm. So he founded uh, L Brands or Limited Brands, uh, which owns 3,000 women's apparel beauty stores. Have you – I don't know. Are you a Victoria's Secret
1: shopper? Um, Not for myself. Uh, No, 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 to be honest, my my wife loves them, loves Victoria's Secret, you know, and and when – because I think they've got fairly limited – they've they've got stores in airports, I know, in Australia – Yep. Um, and but they don't sell all of the stuff. That's mainly an online sort of delivery stuff. But no, it's a, like it's a it's a very well known, um, you know, and popular popular brand. Yep. Um, uh, you know, definitely probably was you know king or queen of the castle, you know, for many many years. Absolutely, you you raise an interesting point
0: about you not shopping there. They actually uh, part of their model is to make males feel more comfortable about buying women's underwear for their partners yeah Uh, and that's all part of the the sensational nature of it you know these these glamorous fashion shows these um um, models these angels which have quite incredible physical proportions as well as being stunningly beautiful uh and it's really they've really focused on the fantasy and honestly they're focusing a lot on the male market buying underwear for for your female partner so Mm-hmm. Um, and and Les Wexner, so he's a uh, founder, chairman of L Brands, interesting guy. Uh, hit number 248 on Bloomberg's Rich List at uh, a sniff over 6.6 uh, 6 billion in worth. Yeah. And um, and you know art, Martin. Uh, <laughs> so he, uh, it, it, random fact was he bought Picasso's Nude on a Black Armchair. Uh,
1: in 1999 oh, for 42 million the head of victoria's secret and l brands i'm kind of envisaging a hugh hefner type character but um but not quite yeah i don't know i don't know potentially but let's, potentially in his attitudes i don't know
0: yeah and so that's a really interesting one so so they've they've hit some hurdles with their sales more recently they've hit some snags because of what some of their executives have said. One in particular, uh, this chap, Ed Razek, who's their chief marketing officer of the parent company, so of L Brands, he's he's finally come out and said, no, we're not going to have plus-size models. We're not going to have transgender models. And he said that that is going to be the case as long as he's in the job. All these issues sort of came to a head maybe last November when Razek spoke to Vogue Vogue magazine and basically said, well, we're not going to have plus-size models, transgender models, and to sort of paraphrase paraphrase him, he said, it's about fantasy and it's not about being politically correct. Obviously, this has drawn ridicule from large elements of society. But he said, look, his point is we're not selling to everyone. We have our specific market. And I think the really interesting point about that is, one, he was allowed to speak freely about it, but I think he was allowed to speak freely about it because it's in line with – Their model, it's in line and supported by the rest of the executives, including Wexner, and that is the fit with the company culture, whilst that's probably a repugnant way of selling for a lot of people. And the second part to this is that they they are now onto their third CEO just recently, Um, and this is after their longtime female CEO, uh, Sharon Turney, uh, left in 2016, you can probably read into this a bit. She was always big on managing to convince consumers that this was a celebration of the female body and it was a form of empowerment. But at the end, it looked like she didn't agree with the direction that Wexner wanted to take with the business. And there has been some of the research I said sounded like that. Now with her gone, the, the men have really taken over. They are heading in that that direction of the ideal woman not one based on
1: reality that's a pretty quick turnaround between 2016 and then 20 because me too 2017 but look i'm not even sure that the change is necessarily just in line with me too there's a there's a, a a growing requirement for companies to have that sort of corporate social responsibility at least consideration um to their piece so but that is a that's a between now where um you know where the victoria secret shows currently sort of ended up that's a, that's a that is a very quick drop off
0: yeah and it's been a massive opportunity which people have um have jumped on very quickly so a lot of these progressive underwear startups their sales are going mm-hmm. through the roof because they are selling themselves as the antithesis of uh victoria secret so the um uh, Third Love, Lively, MeUndies, Tomboy X, which is all about empowering women, size inclusive, focus on comfort rather than sexually appealing. Um, everything the complete opposite to Victoria's Secrets. And in fact, Third Love recently um, released a, an open letter to Victoria's Secrets explaining why male fantasy marketing tactics and discriminatory culture had prompted their own growth in the market. In direct competition mm-hmm. with with Victoria's Secret. Like everything, there'll be two sides to this, and I reckon there would be a lot of women out there with in their in their underwear drawer would
1: have both Victoria's Secrets and a selection of comfortable underwear. With the two brands are very very different, um, yeah. but it's about I suppose the the broad uh, image. I mean, you. You could take this away from Victoria's Secret, um, you know, highlight potentially the the Gillette campaign that uh, that came out uh, about sort of toxic masculinity. You've got a lot of companies that are, are now bringing this as part of their strategy in order to be able to, you know, on some critics would say it's a virtue signaling tactic. Some would say, and, then, and, it's, and it's only to drive sales. Others would say it's a, a bit more of a um, bit more of that social responsibility. But you know, there's potentially room for both. But I think the key issue is, is that if you're Victoria's Secret and you're seeing this happening, at what point? Do you, oh, do you just watch it until your company dies? Do you do you make it? It doesn't feel like any of these events here were based on sound strategy or coordination of messaging. Or or if it was, they've lost six percent of the
0: market share, so they've they've done it wrong, quite yeah. simply. But there's a bit more to this as well. So that I guess getting back to Les Wexner, obviously an interesting guy, but. He's been very closely associated with Jeffrey Epstein. Mm -hmm. In fact, very closely. So Epstein, for those that don't know, and and actually this has all come about in the last couple of months, well after I initially did the research for this, uh, he uh, just recently suicided in in prison, again, with a lot of controversy around that. But he's... uh, Mm He's a well-connected multimillionaire who moved in financial, political, and cultural elite of, of society. But he also was was in Les Wexner's back pocket. So he had a two-decade-long reign as a close confidant, financial manager, and right-hand man to Wexner. Even at one point, having his um, Wexner's power of attorney. Um, I, don't, I don't know how wow. that works, but yeah. Um, and Epstein, of course, uh, served. 11 months in custody for for yeah. underaged prostitution and then of course was jailed again more recently in july the charge was sex trafficking of, of minors in florida and new york uh i think uh, i think at the end of the day we can just take the way he was um not a particularly uh nice guy not someone you want to be associated with absolutely not uh Interestingly, I haven't seen a lot in the media about Victoria's secrets connection with Epstein absolutely not healthy for for Wexner to be associated with with this chap and doesn't paint him in a particularly good light by the um, the company that he keeps but, but then again as I, I wrote recently Prince Andrew was a was a friend of Epstein's as well
1: yeah <laughs> uh, so, uh, as I think there's a lot of people hoping that probably are associated with him that haven't been uh, revealed yet as well. Yeah. They'll be yeah. hiding away.
0: And then their their fashion show. So their big their their flagship fashion show for the last 23 years, Victoria's Secrets, has. Um, so when I did this research, there were rumours that it had be cancelled, but you were just saying that it, that it has been. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah as of um I think the article that I was looking at was from September it was from late September uh, but yeah at this stage there will be no show for 2019. Right. Uh, so they rethink they may be going into a, a a bit of strategizing about that but that's a that's a fairly going from losing their television their television broadcasts and just haven't been able to reposition it so it's interesting.
0: And the drop in numbers was phenomenal for the viewing. It's gone; It's basically halved in numbers from 6.6 million and then two years later it's gone down to 3.3 million viewers. So the appetite for those sorts of shows, skinny models on catwalks, uh, has obviously declined significantly.
1: But that's an interesting thing. That's a little bit like a, a catching fire kind of moment because once you've got a negative association, all of the celebrities that – previously would have been going to sit in on those fashion shows it's no longer the met ball or or a place where people go to be seen anymore um if anything if you attend it you can be called out uh in social media you're then seen to be yourself out of line with with consumers
0: Mm. so look i think the interesting one here is so it's definitely one of those slow burn crises and it's taken them probably far too long to react and i still don't think they have reacted except for cancelling their show which probably saves them some capital but they're not showing themselves to be to be agile to competition or consumer needs um mm. they've they've now well agility they've they've closed a thousand stores in the u.s Whoa. so and the, they've got a new so their third ceo who's uh john meers so another man, uh, which is, again, probably another issue in regards to perception. But he's got a, he will have a massive job on his hands. Their mm. sales are floundering. They've got people like Ed Razek speaking openly to the media about their their model, which doesn't fit with a lot of consumers. How do you shift the thinking of people on the board, particularly the chairman like Les Wexner, to to regain that market share? I think with a lot of these things and a lot of these executives in the positions that they're in, there's a bit of the – familiar with the, the, the ladder of inference term. So I can't remember what the seven steps of the ladder are, but basically if you have an hmm. idea, you'll look for things that reinforce that idea and, and tell you that, that that idea you've had is true. So social media is great for it because you start searching certain things. Facebook will,
1: will start putting those things in your feed. Well, we're okay. currently seeing that in political debate, don't we? I mean, like that's, completely. I mean, yeah, and that that absolutely you know plugs into uh, this particular situation that is you know with the Me Too movement. You've got people that are very um, decided on on kind of either side, and it fuels debate that it feels like either side isn't
0: listening to each other. It may be because they're not, because a lot of the information they're getting fed. Has been filtered through an algorithm to make sure that they their views are getting reinforced by other people, other posts, other research, which reinforces their own beliefs. But yeah, I'd, I'd initially done a bit of research on this piece because I was interested in in Razik and his comments and how the comments of an individual can bring to a head an issue for the company. And and it really it was his comments which drew people's attention to the fact they were on their third CEO and that their market sales were dropping and that they were out of line in their, or out of touch with with their their marketing for, for a large group of the population. But it actually came about because I'd seen some other ones where quite obviously executives were out of touch. Um, the, the one which was qu- quite obvious in my mind was earlier on in the year, it might have even been late last year, was um, the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, was in mm. Myanmar having a lovely time tweeting about the joy and the food uh, and the amazing time he was having to his 4 million followers, whilst at the same time there was a humanitarian catastrophe happening uh, against the, what is it, 700,000 Rohingya Muslims in the country. Mm. A guy like that, obviously very sharp, you'd expect to be very much in tune with what's happening in the world, completely ignored the elephant in the room, which was the plight of the Rohingya the tweet itself read, the people are full of joy. The food is amazing. Myanmar is not a particularly big country. The fact that mm. you can visit there during that, a crisis like that, I mean, he didn't make any reference to it. Uh, you know, the, the United Nations had labeled a textbook ethnic cleansing. They'd claimed the Myanmar military had committed mass killings, sexual violence, widespread arson against the um, Rohingya ethnic minority But interestingly, uh, I thought really telling was the fact that the United Nations had even had a crack at Facebook, uh, and they'd said that they'd morphed into a social media giant, and it was a beast spreading vitriol against a Rohingya Muslim claiming uh, hate speech and incitement of violence on social media is rampant. So the UN was, was speaking out against social media, so Facebook in this case, whereas at the same time, you've got the CEO of Twitter seemingly oblivious of what's happening in the very country that he's staying in or confused about what he, what's appropriate to be tweeting or not.
1: Well, I suppose that speaks to the point where there's, there's the, the idea of the public and the private self. If you are a, a person that commands that level of influence, I'd probably argue you don't get to have a time off in to do that. I mean, if you if you if that was a political figure, if that was a Barack Obama traveling at the time and with the, the current U.S. president, we know he will tweet wherever he is. Um, but yeah. the uh, but in terms of like anybody else, you expect a higher standard of. And I think that's probably the case with executives now where we've got a greater level of transparency and there's a demand for authenticity in how they behave. Um, I mean, because you could you could look at uh, you could look at that incident in Myanmar and and say that okay, well, is he gent- like is if he's going to stand up for another social cause or humanitarian cause, is that actually genuine? If it's uh yeah. you know if he can't do it when he's in the country where it's happening.
0: And and it wasn't the first time he'd done that. Apparently he'd also been in India and uh, tweeted something quite offensive to Hindus in the country as well. I'm not not exactly sure what it was, but the fact that this is you know, not a one-off occurrence, I think, is quite strange. Twitter is an interesting one. Like you say, you know, we've got some highly influential people tweeting whatever they like, and I'm I'm referring to Justin Bieber, of course. Well, I, I know, you <laughs> know what? I'm a believer. I no <laughs> longer have Bieber fever. I'm a bit off him. <laughs> um, what do you
1: do this time?
0: Uh, well, they got married. Oh, God. Um, Mugs game. Um, but, yeah, no, so I, no no longer do you have that filter in place. Wow. You know, as as we're speaking now, we've got probably Donald Trump's tweets having international ramifications with the green light for Turkey to, to go into Syria. Um, yeah. That's incredible. And that's had um, that tweet or series of tweets. The end result has been the loss of life for people, which I think is just phenomenal that we're
1: living in a society where, that could be the case yeah yeah i mean at what point does that become the big red button you know there's there's no need for the code. now that can set into yeah a chain of events that there are the the governmental checks and balances aren't necessarily there anymore they they are there but they're influenced and it's the same with business. it's the same with corporate entities or when do we go back the other way and when does
0: When do executives have their uh, tweeting privileges removed from them? Or when do they have to get their tweets verified by their public affairs office before they then can hit the, the
1: slightly smaller red button and send their tweet? But then all of a sudden, then you've got the public's reaction to that which is a an incredibly filtered and sterile set of communications which was what social media was meant to get us away from or at least connect us in a meaningful way yeah and the beauty
0: of it has been the authenticity of people's comments
1: Mm. Uh, so today the general manager of one of the National Basketball Association's uh, clubs, the Houston Rockets, uh, tweeted um, support freedom uh, stand with Hong Kong. He deleted the tweet, I think, not long afterwards. Um, The Chinese reaction, the Chinese, at least government reaction, um, is that they will not televise any NBA games um, currently. They've currently got NBA games being played in China that were not being broadcast. And right. and then the and then the the obvious sort of public reactions that you're seeing in news broadcasts and suppose the argument is you know how much is this being controlled or not but that's kind of beside the point a tweet has had an impact in one of the NBA's largest markets so that that's greatly into
0: this to this second piece which which we've done a bit of research on which is um, Dolce and Gabbana uh, in China they've just had a massive backlash over there it started with with a pretty poorly thought out advertising campaign. But to be honest, mm. they're not the first organisation to have a crappy advertising campaign, which has backfired. And this mm. one was um, was in the lead up to their uh, Shanghai fashion show. From from what I've read, China makes up a third of their overall international sales. So it's an enormous market for them. At, you know, The rise of the Chinese middle class wanting high-end fashion wear uh, and Dr. Gabbana have been riding that way for quite a while. But like I said, bad advertising campaign started with a advertisement with a young Chinese woman in a glittery dress um, eating cannoli with chopsticks, and the lewd narration was, is it too huge for you? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, kind of in poor taste. Not the first time somebody's, somebody's done a bad advertising campaign. You can You can get over these things pretty quickly. The problem came because of stefano gabbana and his supposedly private social media posts being released publicly obviously there's some issues with his grammar here but he but he wrote china ignorant dirty smelling mafia i think that was on instagram from his private account and that got released and has caused outrage from their large affluent middle class chinese consumer base initially Gabbana turned around and said oh my social media account was hacked i didn't make Mm. those statements Um, he's known for making rash fairly abrupt statements so it's completely in line with his Mm. mo so it's crazy to think people are going to uh, accept that really from this backlash they abruptly cancelled the shanghai show which has cost them significant amounts of money high-profile chinese celebrity brand ambassador's Resign. Um, they've mm-hmm. had a lot of their online sales stores, which is where apparently they do a lot of their selling, um, have withdrawn their product lines. The most extreme was a a former fan setting fire to over twenty thousand US dollars worth of Dolce & Gabbana products. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dolce & Gabbana twenty thousand dollars had to buy you is it a handbag and a set of undies. Uh, That's it, probably yeah. not that much. Yeah both Domenico Dolce and Stefano Gabbana did a an online apology which you can find it on online it's weird it's plain old-fashioned weird uh so it's them sitting at a desk with a very large red Chinese looking print behind them and they're sitting there in um in almost Dr. Evil type outfits so gray suits looking very melancholy speaking in Italian with I assume Mandarin subtitles, uh, saying you know all, all these lovely platitudes about about the Chinese and how they never want to um, insult anyone, but it really doesn't come across very authentic at all. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen any any figures for the drop in sales. The the only figures I did see were about the dramatic drop in online clicks for their products, and that was mm-hmm. something phenomenal, like a ninety percent drop. Uh, so if that in any way translates to sales, that could be a massive hit for them. One thing they have done, though, which is different to Victoria's Secrets, is they have opened up their size range a little bit. Um, so whilst they used to only make clothing up to size 12, they've now gone sizes 14 to 18 as well. Maybe an indication they're, they're not going to fall in the same trap as uh, Victoria's Secret in looking like they are out of touch with, with
1: consumers. And I mean, look, they're very different examples, aren't they? Because like one is you would argue is an acute, probably more in line with the types of crises that you've looked at in sort of other uh, podcasts. Whereas this is thoughts of you know the head of the company's um, being made public, and so that incident has just come out versus mm. a a series of events that potentially could have been stemmed if the company had a, a review of their business model and had a um, had the ability to sort of like understand where society was heading and where their place was within that, you know, society and potentially being able to stem the tide of what is a really dramatic fall in a short period of time.
0: Yeah, they are. They are very different examples. But I think you go back with both of them. You could sort of take that step in a, in a kind of academic sense and say, okay, if neither of these companies had these series of events or or something close to it on their risk register, what were they doing? You know, Victoria's Secrets, that shifting consumer sentiment affecting our sales and perhaps in there as well, opinions of executives being used against the companies. Um, mm-hmm. And then Dolce & Gabbana. Gabbana was known for these... Sentiments, um, I guess. Yeah, for the sentiments and, yeah. and for doing uh, off-the-cuff messaging on on social media you know again where's where's the where's the adult in the room the, the response was extremely ad hoc not very well thought out their apology was not very well accepted and um they will have lost significant re- revenue because of these things so do do they have a crisis management process is it is it linked to any risk assessment or risk management process they have does it drive any kind of risk treatment any preparation is mm. their executive posture ready to release holding statements not allow gabbana to make crazy statements you know the, that elephant in the room being oh my account was hacked you know that's never been addressed whereas it was quite clearly rubbish so and how how are they as an organization attempting to to maintain their value their market share and win back the the trust and acceptance of the chinese consumers mm.
1: I mean, this this probably shouldn't be a new world that we're still getting used to, or executives uh, should be getting used to. I mean, like these, everyone has a Twitter account these days, but it still sort of feels like there's some of these, like a who was the who was the it was the head of the it was another NBA story. There was the um he was the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, I think, and he was oh, yeah. um caught he was caught on voicemail, I think, by his partner saying um, like with fairly racist, racist sentiments. Um, and that, so that just came out of nowhere and the league, had to sanction him. I think he ended up by having to sell his stake in the company or something like that. But that happened overnight. So I suppose mm. the question that I'm wondering is how do companies prepare for the blind side for the thing or for their blind spot?
0: That's right. The preparation for – finding out that they're going to be on the front page of The Australian the next day for all the wrong reasons. More often than not, those stories that end up on the front page of the newspaper are from individuals, usually executives, who have made a bad professional decision but quite often a bad personal decision or let their um, ideas and feelings be known which may be out of line with company values. You see that a lot. So, yeah, yeah, I mean... The best preparation for that is to train for it as an organisation, is to have a crisis management team already prepared, already be trained. Uh, that's, that's the best defence against the unknown because at the end of the day, I, I, I get it all the time where, where people think crisis management is a step-by-step flowchart of if this happens to this, if this happens to this, if this happens to this. But actually, it's it's not the case at all. That's, that's really a, a managerial process crisis management is a real leadership. It's being able to make decisions to protect your organisation from the unexpected. Something mm. that which you have not envisaged plays out, or it's played out in a different way than you thought it was going to. The best way to protect yourself is really think through your risk processes. So be able to understand all the risks that might affect your organisation, be able to conceptualise and contextualise those risks. So How might they play out and how might they play out in relation to the organisation? And then the normal risk management processes. Okay, what can we put in to to manage, to treat, minimise, mitigate these risks, you know, transfer the risk? And then what happens if everything we do doesn't work or if something that we've never put on that risk register appears for us? If you have a team that is well-drilled on making decisions, if they have the buy-in from the board, and the executive and i also say that that the board should have a, a crisis management function as well they need to mm. when it all goes bad they still need to be providing that strategic guidance for the organization helping the executive out of the bind by giving their high level guidance on on the direction the organization should be heading and i see mm. it a lot as well now too with with organizations like not for profits and peak bodies which the board the board comes into play because they they play a part in that broader stakeholder management, helping helping protect the organisation or, say for a peak body, all the member organisations that fall underneath it as well by reassuring stakeholders, by informing stakeholders, by being seen as the calm, considered deliberate decision makers which are helping the organisation get through this storm. All right, well... Thanks for that. That was good. That
1: yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Oh, I can think of worse ways to spend a Friday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, finish my scotch.
0: Sad. So,
1: but I better go then. Now yeah, you've got to get another scotch. Yeah.